Good morning. I am not Sergey. Um, I'm not at all Sergey. I am Vince. Um, is this on? Maybe? All right. I can yell. All right. Uh, I'm Vince. I am um, a pastor in Fort Collins at the Town Church, Fort Collins. So, a little bit about me. Um, I, again, I'm not Sergey. He had, um, he didn't. His wife had a baby this week. So, yeah. Congrats to Sergey. So, um, so I pulled some things together and I uh, got here and he- here we're going to work through some stuff. Here, here's, here's who I am. I am um, a pastor in Fort Collins, the town church Fort Collins. We um, have a desire to plant churches across um, Colorado up and down the Front Range and, and this is one of them that we um, helped plant and so we're glad to be in partnership with you. We really see it that way. We see it as a partnership. You all reaching a part of the um, uh, of Colorado that we're unable to because we of proximity, right? We live in Fort Collins, and so we're thankful for you all. Um, we pray, for, just so you all know, we pray for you every single Sunday. Pray for um, what God's doing in and through you every Sunday as we gather together, and so we're we're tied in that way together. So um, that, that's who I am. I uh, have five boys, um, ages six through fourteen. So we're a busy family. Um, my wife is a, a beautiful woman who, um, she has to be beautiful uh, to, in all kinds of ways to take care of all of us boys. So um, they're, they're worshiping with our, our church family today. So um, here's what I would like to do. I'd like you to uh, grab your Bible, if you have one there near you, and turn to the book of Hebrews. If you don't know where that is, that's fine. It's kind of a tricky one to find. It's in the New Testament near the end of your Bible. So you've got the letters to the churches from Paul and then the letters to the individuals, uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and then you've got Hebrews. All right. So go ahead and get to Hebrews chapter two, um, starting in verse one. We'll read. I'll read this and, and then we'll we'll work through it together this morning. So if I could, um, once you're able uh, to find that, if I could invite you to stand with me, um, if you're able this morning to stand, and we'll read from God's Word, and then we'll look at, um, look at what He has, has for us. It's here on the screen for you, um, if you don't have a Bible there or just want to look up. Okay, Here's what it says. I'll read it. You can, you can listen or follow along. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. All right, this is God's Word. Amen. You may have a seat. So, um, we'll work through this passage, but before we get there, let me, let me give a little bit of an introduction about where we're headed. This past week, actually two weeks ago, um, somebody sent, someone sent me this article about some research that was done um, it, uh, by a well-known organization, uh, a well-known Christian organization. And this research that was done was um, done with people who would claim to be followers of Jesus. So these are people who, who claim to be Christians, claim to follow Jesus. And here's the research that, that they did. They, they asked questions about, about what they believed, about their theology, about what they believed about God and who he was and how he was to be worshipped. And, and here was some of the, the results that, that came back. Um, results found that 53% of people who claim to be Christians, they claim to, to be followers of Jesus, 53% believe that humans are good by nature, right? 
53% of people who claim to be followers of Jesus from birth are, are good by nature. Now, obviously this study did not take into account my family, right? Because we are not good by nature. But that was one of the studies. In that same study, a question was asked. Uh, and, and here are the results uh, of the research that, that found 51% of people surveyed, people who claim to be Christians, people who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, right? So, so track with that for just a second. That, that it doesn't matter who you worship, doesn't matter what you worship or who you worship, God somehow translates that and accepts it as worship to him. So you can worship whatever you want and, and God would just some, somehow accept that. These are people who claim to be followers of Jesus that would say, yep, I, I can worship whatever I want and, and God will just accept that. Now, that's got to be concerning to the church, right? That, that ought to be concerning to the church that over half of the church, men, women, boys, and girls, would, would say these kinds of things about humanity and these kinds of things about, about who God is and how he is to be worshipped. That, that, that we've drifted that far, that we've drifted that far away from what the Bible would say. And, and here's where I want to go. I wonder this morning if, I wonder this morning if some of us w- would land in, in the kind of camp that, that's drifted away from the truth of who God is. I, th- I think that's something we ought to consider, that, that you've felt the same kind of drifting, maybe not in the same kinds of studies that have been done here, but you've you felt your heart drifting away from who God is and what he's called you to. Now, here's the thing about drifting. It's subtle. Drifting is subtle. It's, it's unintentional. And it's often, um, often there when, it's not, when, when, when your, your life is not firmly rooted and anchored in an unshifting foundation. When it's not rooted in something solid, drifting will absolutely uh, occur. This past summer, the, the church that I'm a part of um, gave us the great gift of a sabbatical for three months. So I spent three months away from our church, away from my, um, my role as a pastor, and, and we spent the, the whole month of June traveling as a family. So we spent most of that time in California as a family together. My boys had never been to a proper beach where they could get out and play in the water and the waves. And, and so um, we, we did that. We spent most of our time on, on the beach. And so um, we, we, we get to California. And some of those first days that we're there... Um, we, we go to Pacific Beach in San Diego, right? So we, we get there, my boys run out to the water, and they, they get out in the water, and they're playing, they're having a good time. This beach is packed. Right? There, there are hundreds of people there. So we put all of our stuff down. They run out, and just a few minutes after we got there, this um, lifeguard, this David Hasselhoff-looking guy in red shorts and that flotation device that will do nothing if someone's drowning, right? But he's running out there, right? Slow motion even, Right, so he's running out there, and I'm getting all excited. Right, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be great. There's a shark who's going to rip someone, pull them under. Right, this is going to be awesome. Even though my boys are out there, I don't care. That's a great story. Right, shark bites and scars are amazing for boys. So, so I'm excited. Right, so he's running out there, and he's yelling at everyone, move toward the pier, move toward the pier. Right, so he's getting everybody down this way, 
And I'm thinking, it's got to be a shark, right? So he comes out, and I do what any um, concerned father would do. And I say, hey, what, what's going on? I ask him, what's going on? And, and he says, well, well, the undertow in this area over here, away from the pier, it is so strong that it's pulling people out into dangerous waters. And so we've got to keep everybody down by the pier, right? So somewhat disappointed that it wasn't a shark, um, I yelled to our boys, hey boys, you, you've got to listen to this guy, David Hasselhoff. You've got to move down by the pier and, and stay over there, right? Why? Because the water is pulling people out. It's pulling people out. So about every 10 minutes after that, David Hasselhoff would run back out and yell, move toward the pier, move toward the pier. Because people were, were drifting out. It's, it's gradual. It's a gradual pull, and sometimes, sometimes it's a dramatic pull, right? It would pull you into dangerous waters. But in almost every case, you don't realize that you've drifted. In almost every case, you don't realize. It's unintentional, it's subtle, it's quiet. And so Kirsten and I taught our boys some, some important lessons that day about the ocean because we were about to spend the whole month camping on the beach. And so we um, uh, spent some time working through some, some, some lessons. First, and maybe you can write this down if you're ever going to a beach, um, when you're waiting on the next wave, right, when you're waiting on the next wave to come in because they were riding waves, um, make sure that your feet are firmly planted on the sand. Right? Make sure you're planted while you're waiting on the next one. And then second, after you ride that wave, Right, and you tumble over and you're cleaning out sand from every crevice, right? You you make sure then that your eyes are fixed on, on the pier. Make sure your eyes are fixed on something that's stable, something that you can gain gain your bearings, and you make adjustments if you need to to get back. Because again, drifting is never intentional, it's always subtle, and it often goes unnoticed unless your feet are planted and your eyes are fixed. So here's what the author of Hebrews is doing in this text. The author of Hebrews lays out this very clear argument in chapter 1, which we didn't read, which we we haven't looked at. Um, But in in chapter 1, he lays out this very clear argument using seven Old Testament texts, proving that Jesus is greater than the angels in every way. He just lays out this very clear argument that, that, that Jesus is greater than the angels, and the whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is greater than everything. And, and, and then he gets to this warning in chapter 2, four verses of this warning, and it's an appropriate warning. And the warning is directed to a people to say, plant your feet on something firm and fix your eyes on something stable. You, you've got to do that. And, and so the context of the book of Hebrews is, is probably helpful at this point. So let me just give you a little bit of the context. The context is this. The context is that this book was written to a group of of Jewish Christians, probably gathered in a house church, because of persecution. So they weren't meeting in places like this. They were meeting in houses because of persecution. They had faced persecution in Rome, and they had been scattered outside of Rome, and then they had been slowly coming back because persecution was, was becoming less. And then under Nero, who was a nasty guy, persecution was rearing its ugly head again. So they were meeting in homes, uh, right, scared to go out. And here, you can imagine, is what is happening. The people are discouraged. They're discouraged. Here it comes again, right? Persecution coming again. Discouraged in their faith. Uh, discouraged in life in general. And it's possible that many of the recipients of the book of Hebrews were beginning to consider if this life of following Jesus was really for them. 
beginning maybe even to toy with the idea of leaning back on their Jewish roots, their Jewish heritage, because then at least they weren't being persecuted. So they're, they're toying with that idea, dodging persecution. They were discouraged, they were frustrated, they were apathetic, they were confused. Now think about those words. Discouraged, frustrated, apathetic, confused. Those words may describe some of you even this morning. Followers of Jesus, Christians, maybe some of you for years, but currently you're in a season of discouragement, Whatever that, wherever that hits you. D- discouragement in your faith, and so you can relate with the original recipient of Hebrews, and over time, really, maybe without even noticing, some, some drifting has occurred. And so it's natural that the author begins by showing that Jesus is greater than the angels, really greater than anything you could put your hope in. And then you step into chapter 2 where there's this warning, there's this challenge, there's this encouragement to, to pause and to wake up, to, to look around, to pay close attention to what is happening. And I wonder if, if some of us may need to pause and hear that warning this morning, to wake up, get your bearings. Look, look around. Where, where are you? Uh, for some, it may be an encouragement because you're in a sweet spot with Jesus. An encouragement to keep your feet planted there, to keep your eyes fixed there. That, that may be where you are. The warning is to pay attention so that you don't drift. And so this, this warning, this encouragement is coming from a pastoral friend warning them in this argument from lesser to greater. Now this is a, an argument that the author often uses. It's an it's a argument that we still even use today. Right? You may not know that you use an argument like this, but the author uses this argument that I hope to explain to you and show um, hopefully clearly. Here's kind of what that, that argument looks like, lesser to greater. A little piece of bacon as an appetizer before a meal, in a lesser way, is really good. If it's preparing you for a bacon-wrapped steak in the main course, right? So you see that? This, this argument from lesser to something greater. Did you get that? You don't eat bacon. All right, so we'll just keep moving on, right? So um, if you look at chapter 2, it begins with this word, therefore, right? Therefore, and it points us back to chapter 1, that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than anything that that we would put our hope in to offer salvation. No angel has ever offered that. Uh, Because that's true, or therefore, the author says, we've got to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We've got to listen to the message that has been given. So this first verse is setting up the warning that's about to come. This is a message that we've got here, that we've got to pay much closer attention to it. Uh, Again, I'm going to put it out there. Uh, Again, I'm going to do this several times. I wonder if some of us may need to hear that warning, may need to pause and consider to hear this wake-up call. And, And so in this passage, after the warning, there's this lesser message that is true in its own way that we need to hear, and then there's this greater message that we absolutely need to hear. Now, if you're an outline taker, a note taker, here's here's the outline, okay? The lesser message points to salvation in Jesus, while the greater message is salvation in Jesus. And I'll hope to show you this. Right? The, the lesser message points to salvation in Jesus. The greater message is 
salvation in Jesus. And then we'll circle back around to the warning. So let's just work through that. Verse 2, we have this lesser argument about a lesser message. Not unimportant. So don't hear me say that, that what we're about to read in Scripture is unimportant. It's not. It's just a lesser message that's pointing to something greater. The author says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, what message is the author talking about here? Right? Since the, this message proved to be reliable, here's what many people think. Many people think that the author is talking about the law of God, right? the laws that we see in, in the book of Exodus, some like 15 chapters that are, that are just um, sorted through with these laws of God, specifically laws from God given to Moses to give to the people. Now, traditionally, what is thought then is that God gave, the, gave these laws directly to Moses, but... They were transmitted to Moses by, by angels. You, you can look this up later. Deuteronomy 33.2. Moses is speaking to the people as he's, he's come down and, and he's giving this blessing to the people about how, to God, how um, God gave them the law and he's blessing the people. And he says in Deuteronomy 33.2 that, that this, this law came from ten thousands of holy ones. It came with flaming fire at his right hand. And so the thought is that the ten thousands of holy ones are these angels that the message has been transmitted to. In fact, Paul, an author in the New Testament, um, says in Galatians 3 that he's, um, it, that, that he's working through this law. And he says that this law has been brought by the angels as an intermediary. Right. So traditionally the thought is... The law was given to Moses by God, but, but transmitted through the angels. And so the author picks up on this from Hebrews, picks up on this, and he says, we've already established that Jesus is greater than the angels. Hang with me. This argument is good once we get there. This author, we've already established that Jesus is greater than the angels, and the message of the law was brought about through angels, and that message has proven to be reliable. It's been passed on for generations and generations. It's the very law of God. It's reliable. And then verse 2 continues that this law was declared by angels for every law there is a just retribution. Now, you're thinking, why did Sergei invite this guy to come in and talk about these kinds of things where there's this punishment that comes? Well, hang with this. For every law that was given in the Old Testament, there's a, a punishment associated with that, right? So if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. Every law ha- has a punishment given for the disobedience, and, and it was taken seriously. There were, these weren't suggestions, right? These were, these were laws given by God, mediated through the angels, and every single law was taken seriously, had a corresponding punishment. And if you know the, the Bible well, you'll know that this is not some unimportant thing. This is serious. These laws were given for our good to point out our sin. These laws have been given because of sin, and it shows us what? Our, our need our need for something greater. So, so it keeps us moving in that direction. But we also know that we'll never be able to keep that law. Right? I won't, you won't, we won't be able to keep that law. And so it leaves us longing, right? It leaves us longing and wanting for something greater. It's pointing us to our need for salvation from the punishment that is coming. It's not unimportant, but the author of Hebrews has already made clear that Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. So we've got to see this, that the message that the angels brought is lesser 
in that, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to salvation in Jesus alone. Saying that this message is lesser doesn't minimize it. It doesn't, it doesn't shove it down. It's just saying that we're pointing to something greater. And so there's where we go from there to the second part. This is where the, the argument continues in verse 3 to this greater peace. In verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, How then shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Or in other words, how are we supposed to escape the punishment we deserve if we neglect the greater message? Right? We could be disobedient to this lesser message, the law that points us to our need for salvation and receive punishment. But if we neglect the message of salvation in Jesus, then where do we go? The lesser message is pointing forward to Jesus and to, to neglect the very message that is being pointed to from the lesser message. Well, then what? That, that's the argument the author is trying to make. The lesser message points forward to salvation in Jesus. The greater message is salvation in Jesus. Does that make sense so far? Head nod. I heard one uh-huh and one head nod. All right, so we'll just keep moving. All right, the law and the need for the law are satisfied then in Jesus. Everything's pointing forward to Jesus. This is the whole book of Hebrews pointing forward to Jesus. And now it's here. And so the author tells us that it's been three things, declared, attested, and confirmed. So it's been declared by Jesus himself. Jesus himself proclaimed the message of salvation in himself, in his life. It was attested by those who heard, those who heard this firsthand message of salvation from the salvation giver himself. And it was confirmed by God. God himself bore witness of salvation found only in Jesus. How? Through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders and miracles, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all point to what? The message of Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, if you read through the Gospel of John, um, John rarely uses the word miracle. In fact, he uses the word sign. Now, why does he use the word sign? Because what does a sign do? It points to something else, right? The sign isn't the, the important thing. It's what it's pointing to. And so over and over, these signs are given in the book of John to point to the real thing, Jesus. And when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he left the Holy Spirit as our helper and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that have been distributed to uh, to every believer by God point the attention to whom? The the person? No, to to Jesus, right? To, To Jesus. All the attention is pointed there. So Jesus himself has declared it. People around have attested to it. God has confirmed it. So let's go back to the outline. The, the, the greater message is salvation in Jesus. That's the greater message. Right? The lesser message points forward to it. And so do you see this argument from lesser to greater? There's this lesser message that's pointing forward, and the greater message is actually Jesus. And right in the middle of that argument is a question. If punishment from God for the breaking of the law was an absolute, and the law was a message that pointed forward to something much greater, what then if we neglect that message? What then if we neglect, how much worse then if we neglect the greater message? Now, let me pull aside for just a second because there may be some of you, some of me, some of us that, that, that would um, need some clarification about these things because you get to passages like this and you begin to wonder, is something going to go awry here? Like, do I need to wrestle with where I am in my relationship to God? So let me pull aside for just a second and say this. First, the word that is used is neglect. I want you to see that. It's not reject. 
Because we know what happens if you reject the message of the gospel. It's very clear in Scripture that if you reject the message, that there is, there is punishment that, that comes. The word that's being used is neglect. So, so what's meant there? Here, here's where I think we've got to go. Um, in fact, let me, let me just stop for a second and encourage us in this way. Um, I think we could spend hours, literally hours and hours and hours, going from passage to passage in Scripture showing how God secures His children in salvation. He takes hold and has purchased His children by the blood of His own Son and secures us there. By grace, through faith, not your own doing, it's the gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, John 10, 28, Jesus gives eternal life. No one will snatch them out of his hand. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So there's a lot of this over and over in scripture. On and on we could go, if you're a follower of Jesus, purchased by the blood of his own son, given faith to believe, sealed with the spirit, then you are saved. His And I've heard it said before with this question about, can I lose my salvation? I've heard the answer to that given, you can't lose your salvation because it was never yours to begin with. It was a gift from God given to you. You have been saved, but that salvation has been freely offered and perfectly secured. And so for those of us who who read passages like what we see in Hebrews 2, and we begin to get a little jumpy or concerned, which, which we do, on the one hand, I would recommend that we plead with God for more faith. God, help me believe where I'm lacking. And then on the other hand, I would say this, rejoice. Rejoice. And that may sound strange, but, but I would move in this direction and say, uh, uh, those who are not concerned, those who, who do not care about their position in Christ would not be asking these kinds of questions about, am I saved? Right? And, and so rejoice in that, that God has secured you and has put in you a longing to know more of him. Wondering if you are a true follower, you, you are. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you've been adopted into God's family. Your position is secure. Your faith, listen, your faith will endure not because you've mustered up some good faith, but because God has granted it to you. Right? So what is meant then by, by this sentence, this question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, right? Probably what's meant here is some kind of retribution, some kind of consequence for neglecting or ignoring the greatness of the message of salvation. The problem is, and I'm going to leave you all hanging, the problem is is that the author doesn't make clear what it is, so anything we could say right here would be speculation, right? And so questions come to mind. Is it discipline from God? Or we get to more of that in the book of Hebrews. Is it some kind of loss of heavenly reward? What is it? We can be sure of this, though. But whatever those questions are, we can be sure of this. That the author includes himself. Because he says, we. What should we do? So the author is including himself. Therefore, this is what the author says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So, So the author is including himself. And what is it that they've heard? What is it that, that we've heard? The, the gospel, right? The message of salvation. And so the, the warning then, all the way back to the warning, we'll circle back around. The, the warning is, pay much closer attention to that. It, it, it's, it's a greater message centered on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So you see this big circle that the author is putting in front of us. And I would say this as we round this out. 
this is a warning for us. If we believe the word of God is living and active, this is not just for the people then, but it's a a word for us, a charge and a challenge for us. And so let me put some questions in front of us to consider. Has the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, has the message of salvation in some ways lost its appeal in your life? Have we, have we gotten used to the idea that salvation has been granted, has been freely given? Has the good news in, in some ways just become old news? You grew up with it, you remember hearing it, it's just been this sort of mantra in your minds. Has it become old news? I want us to pause and just consider that this morning. Has the fact that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, we we see this in in the first chapter of Hebrews, the the creator and sustainer of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, the the one who made purification for, for our sins through his death, has that become something you don't really even consider that much? I want us to be honest with ourselves. Maybe you're in a place where you're struggling through other things and they've just become the thing now for you and you're just glad that you have some kind of faith at all. You lean on God in prayer when things are hard. You lean toward God in praise when things seem to be going well. Yes, God is in your life to be sure. It's there. But would you say that you're paying close attention to the message of salvation? Have you recently considered that God offers salvation as a free gift. Listen, even while we're still sinning against him, Christ died for us. Have we considered that? I think this is what the author is getting at. When when we don't deeply consider the greatness of the message of salvation found only in Jesus, we are absolutely in danger of drifting. Of drifting. Because drifting is never intentional, it's always subtle, and it often goes unnoticed. And so sometimes we need this warning. We need this wake-up call to, to plant your feet, to fix your eyes, to, to come back. Or just like our, our boys in the ocean. Boys, you've got to come back. You've drifted. You didn't realize it, but you've drifted away. You've got to come back. You've got to, you've got to keep your feet planted. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the pier, on something stable. And, and to us, I think we would say in, in relation to that, come back. You've got to keep your feet planted on the truth of the gospel and your eyes fixed on the person of Jesus Christ. We need that wake-up call sometimes, don't we? And, and, and to get practical, what, what is that? What is that wake-up call? What is that thing in our lives that, that would sort of wake us and, and rouse us? Let me, let me um, give us three things, and we'll finish out here. And I hesitate to do this because it, it may sound like, well, if you're drifting, here are some things that you can just put into place, and it'll be all over. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not what I'm, I'm getting at, that, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, and yep, I've checked that off. We've got to understand that, that listen, God loves us. God absolutely loves us. He, he doesn't love us because we've gained his approval. We've, we've done the right things to, to gain his uh, approval. He loves us because of his son. He's un, unchangeable. He's immovable. Your acceptance with God has nothing to do with you following some things that I'm about to give you. But maybe today you're saying, I, I don't want to drift. Or maybe you're saying, I, I don't want to drift more. So, so what, do I, what do I do then? I mean, let me end by doing this, giving us three things. Helping us plant our feet and fix our eyes. First, uh, prayer. I think we've got to be pleading with God. 
We've got to be pleading with God that He would keep us fixed. That He would keep our, our feet planted. Right? Maybe we, we cry out with the uh, author of Psalm 51 where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So we, we plead with God in that. We pray. And then second, I would say, is Scripture. If we're drifting, or since that we may drift from the greatness of the message of salvation, we fix our eyes on Jesus where? In Scripture. We begin to, to, to read through and meditate and maybe even memorize passages like Ephesians 1 that tells, tells us who we are in Christ. And then Ephesians 2 that, that tell us so clearly that it's, it's faith given to us, not, not anything we could do. And we just me, we meditate on that and, and begin to look at that. I, I would say this, that, that if we continually look at the, the Word of God, that, that we, there, there's no way that we would drift into being a, a statistic. That one day we would just believe whatever it is we believe. Uh, are we drifting? Have we drifted? Are your feet planted uh, on a firm foundation of the truth of God in His Word regularly? I, I would say this. I'm, I'm not a betting man. But, but I would say this. I, I would almost guarantee, I would almost guarantee that, that if you are not regular, regularly seeking to see more of Jesus in the Word, you will drift. Right? I would almost guarantee that to be the case. That if you're not regularly seeking the face of Jesus in His Word, you will drift. So first prayer, second scripture, third, community. I think we've got to have people around us, people in our lives who, who, are, who love us enough to say, you're drifting. You're drifting. Right? You used to be here, but, but, but I've noticed that now you're over here, and I know that because I'm over here. Right? So you've got to come back. You've got to keep your feet planted on solid ground and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And I would almost guarantee again that, that if you are, are drifting or have drifted, that may be directly related to the community that you have around you, the community that you've invited into your life, the community that you've invited in to have straightforward conversations with you uh, about the temptations that you face. Uh, many of us think that we have Christian community around us because we show up at a gathering like this on a Sunday morning. Or that we, we once in a while have, have a meal with our township. And so, yep, we've got Christian community. But listen, it's not some loose connection that will keep you from drifting. It, it's a, a connection to a community of people who you've invited in, who know you well, and who will be, love you enough to call you back. Pleading with God in, in prayer, looking to Jesus in his word, having a community around you to call you on both of those things it, so that you're not neglecting the great salvation offered. And, and I feel the need to, to end here. If you, if you have drifted, maybe that's you this morning. If you've drifted or, or, or you're in the place of, of currently drifting or you've sensed a season of drifting coming, neglecting the greatness of salvation, hear, hear this, let this rest. There's grace. There's grace. The grace of God is one that calls you back. If you're a follower of Jesus, saved by the blood of his own son, God's own son, he sealed you, and you've drifted. There's grace, and he's calling you back. He's saying, come back, come back. He's calling there, son or daughter, you've drifted, but come back, and I'm welcoming you. 
And, and so I'd like to pray. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're in a season of drifting. I'd like to pray for you. you. You've certainly experienced it. Maybe you're in a season where you're helping someone else out who has drifted. So I'd like to pray for you as well, and we'll continue um, to worship Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, we recognize this morning that um, your word at times is tricky. It's hard to sort through. It's hard to read through and, and understand the arguments that are there. We understand that. This is um, a passage of Scripture that's tricky to, to navigate and really um, hard to read and, and understand everything that's going on. So we just confess that. that God, we need your help to understand your word. But, but as we read through this and, and hear the warning and see the warning of of not drifting away from the great message of salvation and the great life lived in salvation. My, my prayer for my brothers and sisters here this morning is this, that you, that, that you would softly, gently, warmly encourage hearts, um, letting, letting us know that you're a Father who cares, letting us know that you're a Father who loves, loves enough that you gave your own Son shed his blood for our sins. Even as we um, uh, drift uh, away from you or have been in seasons of drifting, you're a God who loves and cares so deeply that you would woo us back, call us back. So for those who have um, maybe not even considered the fact that they've drifted, but now are, are sort of awoken to the idea that, yeah, they've drifted away from seeing the greatness of Jesus. I pray that you would uh, encourage their hearts this morning, that they have a community right here around them who loves them and who would love to walk with them uh, to Jesus. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts to be um, seeking your face in the word, seeking your face in prayer, seeking your face with others who love you and know you. What a, what a blessing, what a treat it is to know that we have a God who loves us so deeply. Would give his son, his body broken, his blood shed to save us. I pray that our, our feet would be firmly planted on that truth and our eyes fixed squarely on Jesus. We pray.